Getting the right title for your film is a tricky thing. E.T. was originally called A Boy's Life, Alien, Star Beast, while Blood Diamond was initially called Okavango, you know, after the Okavango Delta in Botswana. So sometimes titles can be a bit obscure, in which case they need an explanation. Which is precisely what director Nicholas Rogue and producer Sy Litvinov discovered when, back in the spring of 1971, they were putting the finishing touches on their film Walkabout. I was listening. You mustn't waste the batteries. That's if they last for 400 hours. Are you hungry? Not yet. We ought to eat some salt. Why? Uncle Ted said when they were soldiers in the desert, they always had to eat salt. Adapted from The Children, a novel written in 1959 by James Vance Marshall, the story centres on a 13-year-old girl and her 8-year-old brother, lost in the Australian outback, but rescued by an Aborigine youth. Marshall's book came loaded with Christian symbolism. The outback is a veritable Garden of Eden. The girl is called Mary, her brother Peter, and while the Aborigine youth is never named, he does ensure their salvation. Early on in adapting the story, Rogue, Litvinov and screenwriter Edward Bond decided to remove the Christian elements and replace them with pastoral and existential motifs, which is why they retitled the story Walkabout. But as they prepared for their premiere at the Cannes Film Festival, they knew their new title was somewhat arcane and would likely result in considerable puzzlement. Today, you and I may know what Walkabout means but, over 45 years ago, the term had yet to enter into everyday language. Still, the trio knew that although they had ditched the Christian allegory, even if they stuck with the original title, they would be giving the wrong impression as to whom and what their film was about. It wasn't just about the lost children. And yet, it wasn't really about the rescuing Aboriginal youth either. It was about the three of them, and that meant it was about something else and that something else needed an explanation, which is why the film opens with a caption. In Australia, when an Aborigine man-child reaches 16, he is sent out into the land. For months, he must live from it, sleep on it, eat of its fruit and flesh, stay alive, even if it means killing his fellow creatures. The Aborigines call it the walkabout. This is a story of a walkabout. Rogues, Litvinov's and Bond's decision to open with an explanatory caption was crucial because it's not until 34 minutes into the film, over one-third the way through its total running time, that we finally meet the youth undertaking his rites of passage. He just appears up from the other side of a dune. Marshall's book also delayed delivering a critical element. This is the way he opens his novel. It was silent and dark, and the children were afraid. They huddled together, their backs to an outcrop of rock. Far below them, in the bed of the gully, a little stream flowed inland, soon to peter out in the vastness of the Australian desert. Above them, the walls of the gully climbed smoothly to a moonless sky. 
Marshall spends the next while exploring and detailing the landscape, the flora and fauna, the smells and sounds, the rocks and winds that surround the children. And for five whole pages, Marshall manages to keep at bay the reason why the children have come to be stranded in the outback. Mary and Peter are American, from South Carolina, and have flown to Australia to visit their uncle. But their plane has crashed in the Northern Territory, and now they are struggling to find their way back to civilization. Bond's script made several departures from Marshall's novel, not least of which was changing the nationality of the children to Australian, and then dispensing with the plane crash. Instead, the children's father takes them on a picnic to the edge of the outback. Don't go out of sight! Where he inexplicably tries to kill them. He fails and then commits suicide. The alteration is essential. Whereas the plot in the novel is set up by the nautical accident, the film's plot is kick-started by an existential crisis that the father has suffered a catastrophic breakdown. What caused it? Although Rogue never explicitly states it, we can deduce from the clues he scatters about the opening sequence that the father was a geologist. And again, although Rogue never explicitly states it, we can infer a connection between the way European settlers had for centuries mined the outback, whereas the Aborigines had for thousands of years taken care of it. I deliberately chose the words explicitly states because Rogue is only ever implicit in developing the film's themes. There is precious little dialogue in the story. Most of it is throwaway. wins all the time. If we were superheroes, we would definitely win. Yes. So instead, Rogue relies upon film language, framing, lighting, editing and sound mixing to indicate the story is about something other than what is happening. In other words, walkabout approaches upon what Alfred Hitchcock called pure cinema, the interaction between the visual and the audio, where we see one thing and hear something else entirely. And it is oftentimes within the discrepancy between what we see and hear that the meaning of the film lies. Juxtaposition has been around since the beginning of cinema. After all, what is editing if not the collision of ideas? But rather than merely crudely contrast one image with another, Rogue instead presents images and sounds, and after letting some time pass, will then present visual and sonic echoes of events and leave it up to the audience to forge the links. For instance, while the children's father had mined the outback for its minerals, the Aboriginal youth bores open the sands to bring forth water. Clearly then, while the plot has two Caucasian children being rescued by an Aboriginal youth, their interaction suggests a clash of cultures, colonialism. And then, while their continued proximity suggests human unity, their mutual journeys explore ethnicity and diversity, masculinity and femininity, ecology, geology and technology, childhood, adolescence and adulthood. Then there is the struggle between life and death. And again, given that Rogue never explicitly states it, the film explores communication. Neither of the two lost children nor their rescuer understand what the other is saying. 
but they do nonetheless manage to connect their ideas by other means. Do you think you understood when I drew this house? That doesn't look like a house. You can't draw. That looks like a diplodocus walking in space. Or a pterodactyl flying under the sea. I think he might take us to the moon. Wish we had a proper pencil. Why did you say we were the first white people he's ever seen? I always thought you had lots of crayons and pencils in your satchel. Please have a look. The casting and walkabout is nothing short of a miracle. Of the three leads, only the 17-year-old Jenny Agater had any acting experience. The others, Lucy and John, who played the young boy, and David Gulpalol, who played the Aborigine youth, had never appeared in front of a camera before. What compelled Rogue to place his trust in such novices? What Rogue was going for was naturalism, and there is not one frame where you don't believe the performances. Everything about them is authentic, and their emotions are always completely transparent. One of the ways Rogue was able to protect their natural states was by setting up the scenes in such a way that the actors did not know that they were being filmed. Of course, it helped that Rogue was doubling as his own cinematographer, which means that while he had one eye on the performances, he had another eye on the landscape. And given its prominence within the story, you could well say that the landscape is the fourth character. When Rogue was done filming, he sat down with his editor Anthony Gibbs and sound designer Jerry Humphreys to cut and mix back and forth between the visual and the audio so the landscape and soundscape merge into a dreamscape, at once idyllic and threatening. Okay, so much for the film's originality. How about its origins? I said The Children was written by James Vance Marshall, but that was not his real name. He was born Donald Gordon Payne in London in 1924, but before publishing his first novel, Payne took the rather curious decision to adopt a nom de plume. Well, maybe not so curious. Mark Twain was really Samuel Langhorne Clemens. Lewis Carroll began life as Charles Lutwidge Dodson, while George Orwell was born Eric Arthur Blair. And for a while at least, Emily Bronte wrote under the name of Ellis Bell. But what is curious about Donald Gordon Payne's decision to call himself James Vance Marshall is that there was already a known and living author with the very same name. The original James Vance Marshall was an Australian journalist and travel writer, and that James Vance Marshall, who died in 1964, spent the last five years of his life in dispute with Payne, who openly admitted that he had not only assumed Marshall's name, but that he'd also pillaged Marshall's notes and journals as if they were an open-cast mine. But the appropriations do not end there. While it initially appears that Payne exploited the original Marshall's original writings, on closer examination, Payne was pilfering from elsewhere. With its story about Caucasian people lost in foreign lands, there is of course Daniel Defoe's Robinson Crusoe and William Golding's The Lord of the Flies. But there were yet other writers from whom Payne was borrowing. You see, way back in 1845 in Austria, Author Adalbert Stifter published a short novel, Rock Crystal, about two young Alpine children, Conrad and Zana, 
who get lost in the snows while returning home from visiting their grandmother on Christmas Eve. While the novel was greatly and widely admired across mainland Europe, it wasn't translated into English until 1945. So, Stifter's novel just might have come within Donald Gordon Payne's radar. But perhaps it didn't. What is more likely, however, is Payne's familiarity with High Winds in Jamaica. Published in 1929 by Richard Hughes, High Winds in Jamaica tells of the adventures of five young English children, John, Emily, Edward, Rachel and Laura, who were separated from their parents and wind up aboard a pirate ship. Helping them are two Jamaican children of Creole descent, Margaret and Harry Fernandez. Why the fixation with names and origins? One, because under Rogue's direction, Walkabout is a true original. And two, because in the film, none of the characters have names. Which is to say, Bond's script does not waste time saying or explaining things that we can sort out for ourselves. We're not fed any silly me Tarzan, you Jane exchanges. In fact, if you were to read Bond's script, you'll be stunned to see how little there is in it. It runs for all of 14 pages. Shakespeare said that brevity is the soul of wit. But in this case, it is also the genius of Nicholas Rogue, because he spun 14 pages into 100 minutes of cinematic poetry. Into my heart an air that kills from yon far country blows. What are those blue remembered hills? What spires, what farms are those? That is the land of lost content. I see it shining plain. The happy highways where I went and cannot come again. <laughs> 